Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. For today's special episode, I spoke to Michael Piancet and Guillermo Pezzetto from Simulation Engineering Specialist AVL, which works with major teams and drivers from across motorsport. We discussed the importance of simulators and how they can help drivers and teams develop and prepare for race events, as well as the technology required to make sure the models are totally accurate, and what simulator technology might look like 10 years from now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Obviously, there was no real-world racing taking place at the moment, um, and we've seen a lot of a uh, lot of interest, a lot of uh, activity around esports and, uh, and and gaming and, and sims that people are using at home. For example, you know what uh, Lando Norris, obviously um, Charles Leclerc, George Russell, Alex- Alexander Albon. You know, they're, they're getting a huge number of followers on social media and, and, and platforms like Twitch. So we're seeing, uh, you know, into their homes, into the setups that they've gone, that they've got there. How do those setups, how are they different from the professional simulators that those guys would be using in their, uh, their Formula One teams in the factories? Well, I think, first of all, we have to say that what Lando Norris is using at home is a very sophisticated system. So I think there's very few people who have a comparable system in their living rooms. But um, as you said, there is probably some differences between what he's using there and what he's using in his uh, professional uh, time uh, on the track or in the factory. Um, the main target of professional simulators um, are obviously to have the driver feel as if he was in the real car. So the target is to optimize the immersion and there's quite a few important uh, points to that. Um, the first one is obviously the vehicle model running in the background. Uh, that model must be capable of reflecting what's, hap- what's happening in real life as accurately as possible. Um, otherwise, uh, just wrong things will come out of it. 
The second big point is obviously the, the hardware and the system integration. Uh, driving simulator, professional driving simulator is usually a very complex system and uh, usually you're aiming for uh, the driver sitting in the same cockpit as in real life to give him a good starting point uh, to make him feel at home in, in a way. Um, that means obviously you need a proper steering wheel and a proper pedal box to give the driver something that is as close to the real thing as it can be. Apart from the, the cockpit hardware, let's say, to really feel what the car is doing and to improve the immersion, it is necessary to use a motion platform. There are several different solutions for that motion system. Um, some of them are only covering the vertical motion to reflect heave, pitch and roll motions. But most of those systems are also covering your motions. Um, we have found that most of the drivers are sensitive to your motions because it gives them a critical important information about the car handling, especially the oversteer. Um, and that actually brings us to the third point, which is the queuing and the system integration. Um, the driver needs cues to feel what the car is doing through the motion of the platform. And therefore, it is it's the most important point to synchronize the motion between the platform and what is shown on the screen, which is projected to, uh, to the screens, so that the driver is able to give the correct feedback and to avoid the motion sickness. Are there big differences between motorsport categories in terms of the sort of simulators that they would be using that you described there? So for example, like I'm sure we've all seen the pictures that you know that have emerged over the last 15, 20 years of the, the really high tech uh, simulators that Formula One teams have built, that the, the big manufacturers involved in the World Endurance Championships ha it had. But then I've been to, to Formula E teams uh, when, I, when I covered Formula E for Autosport and it's, it's just, uh, it's a static cockpit and chassis with a, with a big screen it's you know it's, it's fairly sophisticated but obviously it doesn't have that that motion that that movement that you described there so is there a particular reason why things would vary from category to category yes i think uh, probably one of the most uh, important is the budget okay of course there, uh, always comes down to money doesn't it <laughs> as you mentioned during the years the evolution of driving simulator and when we talk about driving simulator we don't talk only about one particular area, like just uh, Michael mentioned, is a vehicle model, is the hardware and system integration, is the motion and the queuing. So when you talk about driving simulator, you need to understand we are talking about a full system that need to work uh, together and need to talk each other in a very nice way. And during the years, the, the motion probably was the, the um, coming from aerospace, as you may know, uh, flight simulators are not actually much older than driving simulators on the motion. Uh, and people were trying to investigate applications and the very, very, very first uh, professional driving simulators in a huge uh, dome projection where the full car was sitting, magnificent and multi-million uh, system. And then I think with the advance of technology and computing power getting better and better, so the system can run efficiently uh, with very low latency, so real time, uh, the system started to shrink, improving a lot the queuing. So how the system move, how the system cheat your brain to make you feel that you are sitting in a race car or in a passenger car or a self-driving car. It doesn't matter. The driving simulator are used for all of these applications. 
uh, has been evolved drastically and from the huge uh, installation reduced to what we have what we know today and the queuing is, is a key uh, factor how the system moves and the queuing is not only the motion of, of the simulator itself now the motion system is also the synchronization of what you see so the projection system that can be a very simple three screens like as in Lando Norris use uh, to one single screen or to three projectors, five projectors, ten projectors, twenty projectors, whatever you mention, need to be synchronized. So the, and this uh, obviously at cost. And here is where I think, as you mentioned, start to separate. Okay, now the technology is very well known, uh, and the teams, like you mentioned, Formula E may go into, let us say, professional but low cost. And I, I want to separate professional from gamers okay because uh, a, a good maybe top gamer driving simulator system is 10 times cheaper than the first professional driving simulator the magnitude of the difference but all of them are looking for exactly the same are looking to give cues to the driver that they feel good they, that they feel sitting on their own car they feel driving and they don't get any motion sickness like mentioned Michael one of the, the key aspects of doing this the big budget let's say companies or teams could afford to move into a bigger uh, space with probably 3d projection 8 meter screen diameter and a, a lot more independent degree of freedom for the yo for the for the heave for the pitch for the roll uh, compared with the low budget but at the end everyone look the same very similar tools the model uh, like we are talking about ABL BSM can run in a static in a, a starting professional or a multi-million simulator so they are sharing many things but at the end this last feeling of reality is what today you are paying a lot of lot of money Mm, mm. Now, you, you mentioned, you guys mentioned the motion sickness problem there. I think the very famous example of that that we've been told about is uh, Michael Schumacher, particularly when he came back uh, for his second part of his Formula One career with Mercedes. There are stories that he didn't really want to use the simulator that much or, or that he certainly had a specific problem with motion sickness. Now, obviously, we can't comment on on his particular situation, but why is that an issue? Why, why does motion sickness affect some drivers and some people? And what, what's sort of going on there? Well, we do have seen examples of that in our own professional life, in our own uh, simulator, that we have had uh, top-notch drivers who are very well-known, who are really top-league drivers. They suffered from motion sickness, and that is very different. It's very individual. Um, it is actually resulting from a discrepancy between what the vestibular system and what the eyes are reporting to the brain. Some people can cope better with it, some struggle more, so that's not something that you can train very much. It's either you have it or not. We cannot influence uh, how the body uh, perceives uh, that discrepancy, but we can try to optimize the driving simulator to minimize it. Because the main source on the driving simulator for motion sickness is that the motion between the platform and the motion on the screen, on the image, has a certain delay. Because that gives that diverging information to the brain, which comes from thousands of years ago, where basically if what you see doesn't correspond with what you feel, it makes you think you ate something poisonous and you need to get rid of it. So you start feeling bad and you actually start throwing up. Wow. So yeah, kind of a very, a very visceral, very real effects there, rather unfortunate. Yeah, obviously this for a setup where the screen is fixed and the motion system is 
you know, not attached to the screen or the screen not attached to the motion system. And we could also see quite a good correlation of uh, motion sickness and age. So young drivers suffer less than old drivers. Really, maybe because they, from the very young age, they are already uh, using computers, playing games, and you know the, the the growing up experience has been completely different. Maybe very difficult to explain this, but definitely it is a very clear trend that the older drivers probably tend to suffer more than young drivers. How are you making those simulators behave so that the drivers are recognizing what they're feeling in the rigs as what they'd be feeling on the track? Of course, on the hardware side, as I mentioned before, it is necessary to have the proper hardware for what the driver operates. So that means a good representation of the cockpit uh, for a single seat is preferably monocoque. Uh, for the GT cars, you need also a respective cockpit and you need the proper steering wheel and the steering column and the pedal box because that's what the driver can directly feel and touch and that already has a big influence on how the driver feels when he's driving on the simulator. On the model side obviously it is very um, important to have a vehicle model that is as close as possible to the real car. So what we usually do is we try to prepare with what we call offline simulation so that's a PC simulation not involving any uh, driver or any hardware. Um, where we try to correlate our model with the track data. Um, for the correlation, we are looking at the multitude of different channels and data to, to make sure that the model behaves in the same way as the real car. And only when we have achieved that, we go to the driving simulator and do some final tuning with the driver. You know, how often are teams using this? Because obviously, if we take Formula One as an example, in a in a normal season, if they, you know, taking uh, taking aside the fact that racing is suspended at the moment, it would be constantly developing, particularly the bigger teams, like minor little aero packages, things like that. How often are they, uh, you know, modeling that, putting that into the simulator before it goes, for, before it's even built, and then obviously goes onto the real car? I would say, again, depending a lot on the teams, uh, the level of the... Uh trust that the driver because you at the end we are talking about everything what we do is to bring the best possible car to a, a specific person okay so we need to make that particular driver drive as fast as possible in that particular car and that means the driver who is the end let's say user of all what we are doing need to believe that what he's doing in the driving simulator is correct so that the everything Every work that the engineer does and every work that he does, so the driving line, how the car behaves, how he correct, is as close as possible reality because if I am driving a session of eight hours and I have model one curve wrong and he has been driving over the curve for eight hours, he goes to the track and suddenly you cannot drive over the curve because the curve is too high and you will destroy your, your car, it's a useless session, okay? So the driver need to buy the idea that what we are doing is very close to reality. And that's depending again, some teams may have a better model, a better simulator than others. So today I would say in the high end, very professional, all of them use it. All of them use it to get prepared. So when you start on Friday, when you start on Thursday, depending on the race category, your, your car is very close to what you uh, think is the optimum. And from there, you do very small touch on the car setup, on the driving technique, very, very small to improve. 
you cannot come anymore on Friday with 100 ideas what to try. You cannot come blind. You need to get prepared. And a driving simulator definitely is a way to prepare your race weekend before you come. How often, especially in low series, maybe you, you I guess you have been very often on the racetrack, you hear the drivers say, oh, if I would have on Sunday night, on Sunday afternoon, after they finish the race, oh, the car was really good. I would love to have that car on Friday. So when I started my free practice, that's why you need to do driving simulator to do this, to start already on Friday with a car that is very close to optimum and improve during the weekend. And your competitors do it, your competitors are doing it, you are not doing it, you already start with a disadvantage. Guillermo, you mentioned uh, uh, um, the modelling and and the, the specifics, how how accurate they have to be to help the drivers. I've got a, I can remember going to visit the Envision Virgin Racing team from Formula E last year, and uh, looked there. They just built a new simulator and they installed it at their Silverstone base and everything, and, and we tested it out and tried it. I was obviously uh, woefully slow compared to the real actual drivers, and um, but then I went when we went over to Santiago in January for the race there, the Formula E race there. Um, I, I walked the track with the team, and they were they were pointing out various bits actually outside the circuit because obviously Formula E obviously that track in Santiago isn't in the city centre but it is you know it's still in a real world environment and there were five basketball hoops that were in the park for you know everybody people be using that normally every day and the drivers were saying oh we only had four modelled on our simulator now they weren't using it as a specific reference point for like braking or anything but it just shows you the level of detail that these sims you know the, the technology and the software can achieve so is that quite common to sort of do stuff like away from the actual asphalt of the racetrack and the curbs to sort of model everything you would see in the real world environment? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, we work many years with Ferdinand Habsburg uh, and we have particularly very good experience with him when we were training in Macau. Uh, there is a particular part of the track that is anyway flat, so nothing really, like you say, it's not a breaking point, it's not a, a concern that he need to look at, but he complained because there were some white lines painted in our in our simulation, was painted in the top of the wall, and in reality it's half of this, okay? And he said, yeah, this is wrong, this is half, and should be half, you know, it, it is like this, and, and you, you must, this is the, as Michael mentioned, is the immersion feeling. They need to feel they are there. They need to forget or try to forget that this is a driving simulator and not the real life. Uh, on the representation of the racetrack, I, I cannot say exactly the racetrack, but uh, we have several suppliers sometimes of racetrack, and the driver was driving in a, a particular corner with the two systems that we have, and said, that system is really good. Even graphically, the graphic doesn't look so high resolution, but in this particular corner, I cannot go over the curve. In one system, allow me. And the other system, not, because after the curve, there's a big bump on the grass. And if I go over the curve, I am with my uh, outside tires deep into the bump and destroying my, my, my floor. So the guy said, even if the system graphically was excellent, completely wrong because I can go 20 kilometers faster over the curb when in reality I shouldn't. So this level of detail is needed. That's why we are using many suppliers, top supplier, laser scan, but we use every year onboard cameras, data acquisition, everything to really try to improve 
the maximum detail what is the representation of our racetrack and of course uh, in hand in hand with the model no we need to improve how the tire behave how the tire get the grip how the tire get the temperature how the aero 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 instability all this is together like i mentioned it's a system and not single component you can have the best single component but something in the system is not right the driving simulator will not work yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think that you guys have got a model actually even beyond the racetrack, just in case the car ends up there or, you know, they want to want to achieve take take it to the maximum to, to carry speed through there. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, we, we, we talked about how the simulators can be used to prepare teams before they go racing. Well, we know in Formula One that these sims are in, are in action all weekend during a Grand Prix. So, for example, what the race drivers are feeling in free practice on a Friday, that data is being sent back after they've had their debriefs sent back to the factories we know historically red bull never used to let their drivers race in or their junior drivers race in gp2 and formula 2 as it is now because they were required to do simulator work and help the real world drivers back at the factory so how does that work how does that information get from what say uh what what the formula one drivers are feeling on the real track to their reserve or not reserve drivers but other drivers back in the factory how does that data get fed into the simulators well it all starts well ahead of the race weekend actually because what you need to have already before the race weekend is a good correlation so that means you have an expectation of what the car will do at the track and that needs to be represented at the driving simulator so whenever the free practice is over the data get uh, sent over to the factory you get the feedback from the driver you hopefully only have to do small modifications for example the track grip level was a little bit different from what you assumed the air temperature was a bit different, the track temperature was a bit different. So only fairly small changes that you need to make to replicate what the real driver felt on the track. This is absolutely necessary before you start changing anything because if you cannot replicate what the real drivers found, what's the point of trying to develop something? For that reason, uh, correlation is really important and you need to have a well-correlated model. You need to find the issues that the real drivers were finding on the track and only then you can start by changing things, by changing components and then that information goes back to the track. I mean, I'm guessing it must be very satisfying for, for the teams, for you guys, when, you know, a team, say, say, taking the Formula One example, you know, they're like, oh, we're really struggling on a Friday, I can't do this, well, I don't know what's going on. It gets worked out overnight, perhaps, or, or you know, uh, concurrent sessions going on in the factory, and the driver turns up for qualifying the next day of the race, and they're like, "Oh wow, that, that really, that really worked." What, what we worked on back uh, on the simulator. Absolutely, that's very satisfying, and it has been said publicly by several drivers already that uh, after a big struggle on Friday, the Saturday was much better mostly because the team in the factory did a very good job and brought some very good suggestions to the racetrack that in the end worked out. And I want to add one little comment, as uh, Miki mentioned, don't forget uh, correlation. And correlation means, I, apart that all the typical metric match, that the, the metrics of handling, stability, let's say, uh, also match the situation on the racetrack. So that means on the driving simulator side, on the, your base, 10 hours off, <laughs> Uh, you need a driver that also has a similar driving style like the guy on the racetrack. So if you have a driver that uh, prefers oversteer and the other one prefers understeer, uh, you may have a problem on the setup. Uh, so it is important that the model is very, very accurate and you need to select very wisely 
your development driver as a driving simulator. Mm, yes, it's the sum of all the parts, uh, you know, all working together. And um, I wondered also, you know, I think typically when we would think of simulators and, and, and I mean, perhaps no one else, or maybe this is just me, but you might just think of uh, what aero packages are being modelled and how that affects the handling of the car. But what else can can your simulators and simulators in general model and, and teach the drivers like, like you know, the engine feeling, the drivability, the, the more, you know, mechanical things rather than aero? What, what else can they do? Well, we can do a multitude of things. Obviously, that, again, depends very much on how good your simulation model is, what that allows you to do. Um, in some simulation models, you can only do very simple adjustments of, let's say, the error characteristics. In other simulation models, you can go very deep into the error equations. You can modify the drag and the downforce levels to a great degree. Um, and that really determines what you can do on the driving simulator. So what you can change on the car mostly depends on what your simulation model allows you to do. What else you can do on the driving simulator, what it can teach a driver, is obviously all sorts of driving techniques. Um, from our perspective, or from my personal perspective actually, I think that championships are won on bad days. Because if someone is a championship contender, on a good day he will win the race anyway. But on a bad day, the only good drivers, they might throw it away or finish in P10 or P12. And the really good ones, they might still salvage P4 or P5 um, to bring home some points that can help you in the championship in the end. So what the target in the driving simulator is, is to reduce the number of the bad days. And if a bad day occurs, then try to keep the effect as small as possible, to bring home as many points as you can. Because in the end, the task of the driver is really to drive to the maximum whatever is given to him. Of course, ideally, he has got a car that he is perfectly happy with, with it. Uh, but reality is that you will not always have a perfect car. So you might find yourself, for example, in the race with a lot of understeer, but there's nothing to be done about it. You cannot change the setup. The race has already started. So you as a driver have to cope with it. You have to drive it to the maximum and bring it home. And that's why on the driving simulator, we're trying to teach the drivers to recognize different states, uh, to recognize what they could do to find possible options and then execute it. Toyota had that almost heartbreaking, well, it was heartbreaking for them, um, a failure at Le Mans where they were leading and, and with just a couple of laps, a few minutes to go, the car broke down and they, and they lost the race. And then a few years later, even when it was just really Toyota versus Toyota at the front of LMP1, they were modeling, well, they, they were practicing and, and, and getting their drivers to recognize specific failures on the car. Like, how do I get a car home with a puncture? How do I get a car home, you know, back to the pit so it can be re be repaired if I've got a serious suspension problem or an EC, ECU issues or, or a hybrid whatever um can you can the can the simulators do that as well can that can you specifically say uh, it's probably a bit simple but like turn off bits of the cars to get the drivers to practice how to cope with that yes in certain areas yes it's again coming to the model <laughs> again maybe we are repetitive on this but if the model allow you to for example you have a, um, a turbo combustion engine uh, let's say normal uh, norm, no no hybrid just combustion and i have a turbo failure so I may have to have a model able to de deactivate the turbo, okay? Uh, and deactivating the turbo means I need to probably change some mapping on the combustion side, purely combustion, to allow you to run with a different engine condition. So yes, some, some obviously ABL, apart from 
from the vehicle's dynamic simulation is very well known on powertrain, as you may know. So obviously, uh, all this type of uh, situation for us is, is, is a daily business because we do this very intensive, not only in racing. So yes, we could do these type of things. You could uh, simulate, for example, uh, a tire that is maybe in a small diameter, you know, like the car is pulling to a one direction. Uh, you can uh, uh, simulate, uh, again, depending on the model, but uh, asymmetries on the aero. Okay, so your splitter, for example, is falling down. So in one side, you have a lot more downforce than the other side. Uh, there are many possibilities uh, uh, that you can do, always depending on the on the um, on the model. And of course, uh, especially 24-hour Le Mans is a you need to finish, and and uh, the, the the driver must learn how to cope, uh, particularly on situations that has never been expected. But you need to get prepared. This is key. You need to prepare. You need to do uh, brainstorming, even if it looks crazy just do things that you say come on let's drive one lap with three wheels okay learn about this learn how to do it i personally did le mans in 2008 and uh, the the driver has been trained by the chief mechanic how to assemble his assembly 80 percent of the car there was a toolbox under his seat because if the car stops in the middle of the track and you cannot get there until you know he should be able to disassemble and and, and and solve problems you know this is of course this will not be able to be done in the in the driving simulator but yes you need to to be able and you use it you know the steering wheels today in race cars are super complicated and they have a lot of procedure how to start how to safety cars you know all those things very easily can be trained and avoid any misunderstanding on the on the race because in the heat of the race the stress is so so high doesn't matter how clever and good are the drivers they could make mistake in this such a complicated electronics no? and this can be done very easily in a driving simulator mm, absolutely nice it's a, it's an interesting topic to, to see what they're practicing even well ahead of the racing time and um, but going back to what we sort of discussed briefly at the beginning in terms of the the current gaming rigs that we're seeing so much of at the moment you know how much how useful are they for the drivers or is it is it is it is it more of a hobby thing or, or can actual you know lower tech lower budget simulators actually help drivers uh, you know get better at their houses i think there is a value to those let's say gaming simulators they obviously not as close to the high professional simulators as the factories and the teams have but number one it's easily accessible so a driver can go there for even half an hour and practice and then do something else and come back after two hours and do another hour so that's very easy and it keeps let's say the racing spirit and the racing mind sharp so racing drivers are very competitive they need competition and i think to practice that and just to stay in training to stay sharp is of a very big benefit for them now we've got a, we've got a case study here to ask you about. Uh, you worked with uh, W Series driver Marta Garcia last year. Can you can you tell us how that worked in terms of using the simulators to help her development? How was that last year? The plan was to have her here in our simulator a lot uh, this spring, but this has of course fallen apart with Corona and all the restrictions associated with it. But we're obviously looking forward to resuming the work with her as soon as we can. I would like to bring you maybe another example that we can talk of publicly. Uh, Guillermo has already mentioned Ferdinand Habsburg. 
he was uh, one of the first uh, AVL young drivers that we supported. And of course, uh, he went on to become a professional driver in DTM. But in 2018, we put together a development program for him for a full year with a special focus on Macau. So we put on quite a few simulator sessions. Okay. And as you probably remember, he did actually quite well in Macau. He was fighting for the victory until the very last corner, unfortunately only until there. But um, he was doing well and he was well prepared on our side. In 2019, he was doing DTM. He had lots of commitments there and it was fairly late decided that he was going to return to Macau. So we can, could only do a very limited program with him. And although he was certainly a more rounded driver in 2019 compared to the year before, he was struggling a bit more. And uh, we think it's down to the missing seat time in the driving simulator and we could not prepare him as well as we would have loved. So you mentioned earlier that he complained about uh, the white line uh, not be, uh, you know, it wasn't in the, in the simulator, it wasn't quite accurate. Was that was that fixed for the following year? Yes, actually, that was one of the first comments that he gave to us. Ah, the white line's right now. So he was very happy with that. I've got a very specific question that I've always wondered about simulators, um, because you know, especially we look at see, we look at how the drivers look in their own uh, rigs at home. We see you know occasional press release shots. I you know when I went to visit uh, Envision Virgin Racing, Sam Berb was sitting in a simulator without wearing his crash helmet. Now, is that is that common, or or is it you know when you get a driver in practicing, are they fully as they would be racing with the with the helmet on and everything, or is it use a headset? What what's what's the sort of standard practice? I think generally people tend to sit in the cockpit with uh, sporting clothes and with no helmet, simply because in the driving simulator, although we have an air condition, it gets usually fairly hot. And if you're there, you have no cooling through the wind. And therefore, most people use a uh, sporting clothes and they use a headset because it's um, just more comfortable to work in that environment for eight or nine hours, however long a simulator day will be. Depends a lot also on, on, the, on the system itself. You may know some systems have a belt loading. So the seat belts are actually pulling and, and pressing your chest against the seat to try to, again, what we talked at the beginning, the cueing, no? the motion cueing. But motion is not only the motion of the, of the system, it's everything what is inside to make you feel inside a race car, the vibrations, the forces. And in case they are, uh, maybe you have seen it also, there are uh, special head loading systems on driving simulators and obviously you need a helmet and the system is loading the driver head. You have this extra cueing to, to load your neck and to make you feel the, somehow the lateral acceleration. So in this case, of course, they will have a full uh, overall uh, and helmet, no? Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's that's cleared that one up for me. I really, I really always, always wondered about that. Um, now, obviously, had the 2020 season played out as, as as we would have expected, we would have been to two tracks, uh, speaking right now in early May, that the Formula One teams wouldn't have gone to last year. So I'm thinking Vietnam and Zandvoort. Um, how do you, how, how are new tracks modelled into the simulators? Does it require um, physically, how much does it require physically visiting the locations? And also, because I know, particularly from my experience in Formula uh, like the FIA or certain like a governing body or something would distribute the relevant data but how does how does that work as you said that's very much dependent on the race category you're looking at and the racetrack um, typically what is required from an engineering standpoint of view is a very good quality laser scan of the track 
So that means with a laser you scan the track and its environment so that you can capture every bump, um, every structure that's very close to the track. Uh, we spoke before about references and drivers are complaining if a building next to the racetrack is missing because it's a reference for them actually. So we need as many high quality input data as we can uh, to provide the highest quality for the track. Of course, we can do with less input data, but then obviously the end result will suffer. It will miss some information and the drivers will notice that. But that obviously also comes with the price tag. Uh, the high quality information is quite a lot more expensive than the lesser quality data. There's a flip side to all of this experience. It's not just about the drivers. It is the engineers and the teams as well. So how can the simulator technology help the engineers? Well, it helps them quite a lot, I think, because it helps you to get some mileage with the real driver, with the setup, with the setup that you think is going to work well on a specific track. So you learn quite a lot about how the car behaves, what the driver thinks about it, because we have found in our experience, even if you do, as we mentioned in the beginning, an offline simulation, a PC simulation, and the computer gives you a setup, what he thinks is the quickest, if the driver does not like it, he's not going to go quicker. So that means you need to find something that suits the driver because only if he likes the car, he will go quick. And that's why this is a very valuable exercise for the engineers to learn about the car, to learn about the driver, to learn about sensitivities when it comes to the setup. And this allows you to be quite a bit better prepared for the next race. And can it also be used for sort of the the in action, the in race engineering? So, for example, race strategies, you know, data modeling, the 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 maths, the sort of what they need. To, they they can they learn? Can they use the simulators to learn how to to make calls on the fly and adapt very quickly? Things like that. If the weather changes, or you need to change a fuel strategy or energy management from an engineering point of view. Yes, absolutely. So you can do all that on a simulator. And the beauty of the sim simulator is you can actually record a lot more data than you could on the real car. Um, one example is, for example, tire energy, as you mentioned it. Um, depending on how the driver drives, he's putting more or less energy through the tires. That will affect tire temperature and that will affect tire wear and when the tires fall off the cliff, um, as it's famously known. So all those different scenarios can play through in the simulator and they help engineers a lot in preparing different scenarios um, that are laid out and depending on what's happening in the race they can pull it out and act accordingly the technology is always evolving of course you know we look back to, to when simulators really became a big thing in the last sort of 15 20 years for formula one in particular but what might they look like in 10 years time in 2030 yes i think um um we we try to what we just talked recently in the last seconds uh, is very important one of the first questions you did what is the difference between uh, gamers and professional driving simulator and in the gamers uh, very unlikely you can set up the car and train an engineer properly their games now coming really really close but still not that close as should be to train so we IBL focus obviously always in the professional application of driving simulator and we are looking to improve our model so again the correlation so the driver must drive so we have a, a, a very very nice example about some GT drivers and they came here one that has been driving several type of cars and we just make a test we just 
changed the model without telling him and he was spot on which car he was driving. Okay? So for us, this was great. It was a fantastic feeling to say, yes, guy, we are doing well. We are, because, you know, without telling him, driving the same environment and just telling you, oh, that's, that's actually my car. And this is the car of my friend. And this, he knew by driving just two, three laps, which car he was driving. And of course, we want to improve this. We want to make the correlation a next step to be able to model very difficult things that we are working on, like, you know, aeroelasticity, uh, uh, degradation and situations that are extremely important for the final result of a race. Not only to be fast in one a lap for qualified that is extremely important but so far there is not a qualified championship no, it's a race we need to win races and not qualified and we need to train uh, and we need to improve our tools and our strategy that everything goes into winning a race so our a clear strategy again is to improve the correlation uh, on the model to improve the visuals looking always for the latest uh, potential uh, uh, hardware and to improve how we communicate with the driver and how we train the driver. You may uh, heard recently a lot, a lot of about biosensors or, you know, for us engineers, very normal, we equipped full of sensors a car to understand if the work that we are doing is in the right direction. But how we connect this to the real human? And this is a, an area that we are very, very interested uh, and we are doing it for already more than two years in R&D to investigate eye trackers, uh, EEGs, uh, force suits, you know, uh, hair ray variability, skin, skin alkalinity, name it. You know, we call it basically, we group all those into cognitive loads, uh, attention level and stress levels, no, a physical stress level. So we are investigating, so we are trying to connect many aspects from the engineering side, from the driver side, and from the preparation side. Everyone knows top drivers do a lot, a lot of mental coaching. How do you know if your mental coaching program actually is bringing benefit? It's a very subjective way. We try to make it objective. Okay, so how do you know when he's driving, he's looking at the right point? that he's keeping the attention. How do you know how often he's really blinking, no? closing the eye? How do you know that mentally he's still sharp, but physically he's getting, you know, the reaction time getting slow? All those things help, especially if you talk about endurance races, uh, to take maybe a very academic approach, how I train that particular human to perform at his best. And this is what we want. We want to win races. And win races is not about a perfect car. It's about a perfect uh, connection between engineer, car, and driver. Mm. So, 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 for example, say like we, if we go back to the Le Mans example, if there was a driver who's saying, well, actually, I, I struggle when I'm in the car and it's, it's getting darker and darker into the dust, into the dusk and the night is coming potentially in the future you, there could be a way of, of simulating that so that you can physically see what their eyes are doing what how they're reacting and and train them to improve if that's a particular weakness that they have yes we, we create environment that they try to reproduce the situation and we try to measure human factors with sensors be a sensor we call it uh, and see the reaction and 
for example, you know, many categories, especially the support category of Formula One, let's say, no, they have a free practice or qualify at eight, nine in the morning. Okay. And what time the driver must wake up to perform at his best? What type of breakfast he need to take? How he wake up? What type of physical uh, warm up he need to do? All those questions today are subjective. And, you know, you, you have practices, you see performance, you cannot measure. We try to measure those things. We try to measure how is your brain activity. If I change your sleeping phase, if I change how you sleep, if I change the time that you wake up, how you wake up, and then you go and drive. And then we can measure this. We can see how the best practice make this human in that car, in that circuit, in that condition, the best. It's a very detailed and, and fascinating look into into the world of simulated technology and how our drivers and teams prepare. So yeah, um, Guillermo and Michael, thank you very much for your time and, and coming on the Autosport podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us, Alex. Very nice to talk to you. Well, thanks to Guillermo and Michael for that discussion. It was very interesting. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to know more, please get in touch with us on social media using our handle at Autosport. Finally, thank you again for listening and thanks to our producer Martin Lee for editing this episode. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.